as I was uh, preparing to become a, a pastor, kind of career switch um, in my uh, in my early 40s, one of the things that the Lord really impressed upon me that something that really needed a change was my tongue, my voice. Uh, the Lord had given me some uh, amazing promises about what he, what, what he wants to do in and through me. And uh, there were promises that I was able to write down in, in a journal and, uh, and things that they're just for me, not for anyone else uh, to know about, but they're things that have given me encouragement and, and strength and something I I've, definitely have needed to hear from him. But as I was uh, in the process of preparing to let go of my job and, and, uh, and to give myself over to becoming a pastor, the Lord impressed upon me, Michael, you really got to deal with your tongue because the tongue for a pastor is one of the major tool, part of the toolkit. And if I'm going to be used, I've got to be, uh, I've got to get my tools sharpened and in good working order. And he actually laid out five things for me to, to work with, uh, to work on. Um, that's a lot, but you know, I'm a, a pretty dull vessel. And uh, he, I, I'm supposed to work on sarcasm. And if I've been sarcastic with you, forgive me, I'm still working on it. Uh, working on anger, especially anger, uh, Right before bedtime, when I get really tired, I can get, kind of get um, use unhelpful words around my family. Word, uh, work on rash words was another issue that he really brought to my attention, that I would just say stupid things at the wrong time, to, in the wrong way, and it would offend unnecessarily, and i just get myself caught into trouble by speaking without really thinking carefully. Uh, and then the Lord told me I really need to work on stupid questions. I ask too many stupid questions or the wrong question. And, um, and that's something that the Lord impressed upon me. But the fifth thing, and the most, I think the most important thing that he really wanted me to, has wanted me to work on, has been lowering the importance of my own voice and elevating the voice of God. So that... I don't just follow some of what God says or most of what God says, but all of what God says. So I was working on these things and our family went on a family trip. We were flying, uh, went to a couple different locations and uh, I was at a conference and then from that conference in St. Louis, we flew to San Francisco to visit my wife's family. And on that trip, um, while I was in St. Louis, I. The Lord had told me something very specific to not do, and I did it. And I had done this a few times now, and I, he had specifically told me to do something, and I didn't do it. Now, or he told me not to do something, and I did it. And we went on this flight from St. Louis to San Francisco, and uh, we got to San Francisco, and we got to the place where we were going, and I realized my diary, my diary, where I had written all the promises that God had given me over a period of time was lost. I left it on the airplane on Southwest and it was gone. I felt desperate. I knew I had sinned. I knew I had done something that I wasn't supposed to again. And I felt like the loss of my diary was part of God's message to me that the promises that he's made to me were in jeopardy. 
And I went through this week of vacation praying and confessing and realizing I had blown it. And if God did take away the promises, I deserved it. It, was, it would be right and good. And I had emailed and corresponded with Southwest, telling them about my, my diary, my name on it. I, you know, and for the entire week that I was gone, uh, the, the, there was no sign of the diary. And I realized this question is, will I listen to the greatest voice? Will I listen to, that, to the greatest voice and not my own? I'll tell you what happens a little bit later, but before, let's go to Psalm 19. And if you want to look at it, pull out the Bibles that are in your front pew, it's really important just to see what's here in this amazing text of Psalm 19. Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. You just open it right up and find chapter 19, which is what we read just before we started. Psalm 19 acknowledges that there are many voices. In the Psalm, this Psalm teaches us not to neglect the lesser voices, but to listen especially to the greatest voice. And Psalm 19 has these two voices in verses 1 through 6. It's the voice of creation. Everything that has been made speaks and declares about God. It's the, it's the lesser voice. It's good. And it points us to God. But then there is a greater voice. You see a, a significant shift in the psalm itself, this wonderful piece of poetry in which the greatest voice, the Lord's voice, is lifted up. And these two voices have, they, they function in parallel with one another, they operate in a harmony with each other, and they're also juxtaposed. There, there are differences that exist between them. So let's first of all think about what is this lesser voice that's in Psalm 19? Well, last week we, we talked about it's the voice of creation. Creation points to or speaks to God. And, there is within the creation a, a sacramental order in which the traces of God are embedded. Everything from the, the sun to mathematics to the, 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 the body to anything that you look at, are, there are traces that God is there and in indicating uh, of God's attributes. Creation, the creation uh, speaks in two primary ways. One in the created order itself, in the cosmos, and God is embedded in that cosmos. But then also, and we didn't, the psalm doesn't really talk much about this part, but it's also God speaks through creation through the human person. We who are made in God's image. So one can reflect on what it means to be a human person, and there too you will see a reflection of the attributes of who God is. And so these two things are, are, are work in tandem with one another. All of creation, from the cosmos down to to the human person has embedded within it the traces and the attributes of God. Nevertheless, the speech of creation is limited for a couple reasons. First of all, creation's speech is limited because it's broad. It's very basic. It's, it's very general in what it is able to say. In fact, in verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. That word God is the, word, the Hebrew word El. It's the most basic, simple term that exists in the Old Testament in reference to God. There are many 
uses and words that reference God, and this is the simplest term that was generally used across the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East, El. And it speaks to God's presence, which we last week mentioned that it, it has to do with God's, um, or God's glory, which means his presence or his attributes, that God's, there's power and his wisdom and his benevolence. And yet within this, this general revelation, which theologians have come to call it, this general revelation of creation speaking to us, it's very easy to get mixed up because it's general. In fact, one theologian talked about the mind of, a, of human beings as they engage the creation, the mind is like a labyrinth. You know what a labyrinth is? Kind of a, a, a maze in which we can have all of this data and we can hear all of these things and we somewhat hear what God is saying and we somewhat don't. And because of the labyrinth of our mind, we get utterly confused on what is and what is not. And we're unable to even you, you look at the, the university, the university which has all of these great intellects and who are asking really good questions. They very, actually very seldom ask the most important questions because they cannot penetrate. Their minds are unable to find any sort of consensus in penetrating the difficult questions, and we're left in the midst of this labyrinth. So and it's partly the, the nature of creation, that it gives very general, basic, broad language about God. But creation's voice is lesser also because we're finite, and we're prone to misunderstand. Our, our sin, our brokenness, leads to an inability to understand exactly what is and what's true and, and what's not true. And in the history of ideas, this has actually led to the turning, in the, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries, to the turning to science. Perhaps we could escape the labyrinth, perhaps we could escape our finitude by turning to the empirical method which would be, lead to objective knowledge beyond the subjective knowledge that we seem to be bound by. And we could have a more sure foundation. And this has led to the whole project around the, the sciences that we still, many people still uh, champion and believe in. And, and science is indeed quite good and has led to many, many advancements across all sorts of disciplines. And we are the beneficiaries of that, minus the airplay. Think. <laughs> Nevertheless, science has both internal and external limitations. It has internal and external limitations, and I want to uh, share a little bit of what that is. And this is based on things that I've read and things that I've practiced as a scientist. First of all, there's internal limitations to science. And these aren't often talked about, but they are recognized, especially within the philosophy of science, and that's objective science changes its views. Objective science, actually, you know, we talk about the settled science, but when we talk about settled science, there's actually a, kind of an asterisk, and you have to look down in the footnotes, and the settled science is actually provisional, and it's qualified. It's always open to revision through further experiment, and every once in a while we encounter what some philosophers have called paradigm shifts, in which there is a major revolution in which we think everything is ordered in a certain way, when we read all the data in a certain way, 
And then there is this paradigm shift and all of a sudden there's some new information and all the old information has a different meaning. And so you can, even though we might talk about settled science, and I think largely we can believe in that, but we have to remember that science is limited because it's always provisional and it always has to remain open to, to new ideas or a completely different way of understanding the data. But there's a second and probably more important limitation, it's this, it's that science cannot answer the biggest human questions. What are those? What is the source of our existence? Who am I and what is my identity? What happens after I die? No matter what scientific experiment, no matter what method you use, you cannot actually answer the very basic questions. Science is unable to answer those sorts of questions. Now, within the university, the university has kind of determined, well, we can't answer those questions, so we're going to ignore them, and we'll just go on to the really important questions. And you've got to scratch your head and say, well, actually, the most important fundamental questions, science itself, is not engaging, and it doesn't have the ability, in fact, to engage those questions. Science can describe what is, but it cannot describe what ought to be. That's Immanuel Kant and his is-ought distinction if you ever took philosophy. Science can describe what is, but it can't tell us what ought to be. And for the most part, science cannot provide knowledge on if there is a spiritual realm or what that spiritual realm actually consists of. And so we have to remember that there are these actually these external or these internal limitations to what actually science is and what it can do. But it has been trumpeted often within our culture as the preeminent and even supreme way of knowing. But I would suggest to you there are these important limitations. So there are these uh, internal limitations to science, but there's actually a, an important external limitation that I think you're probably all aware of. And the external limitation is that science is prone to manipulation. It's prone to manipulation in which it can be, there is a kind of a spin that's given. And, and we can see that going on in all kinds of topics. I was reminded uh, this week, I heard a story about a, a 2015 study out of the University of Chicago that reported that children who were brought up religiously were less generous than children who were not brought up religiously. And in 2015, when the study came out, there was a media swirl around uh, the, these findings because it actually contradicted what, what had been demonstrated in many other studies. Uh, it was reported in the Boston Globe, the LA Times, The Economist, in the Scientific American, and over 80 other uh, media outlets. Uh, and it got a lot of attention at the time. But it turned out that the findings were incorrect. Uh, this was suspected by another science team who had done um, some meta-analysis of over 90 studies that had been performed on this, this question, and they had demonstrated that within this meta-analysis that uh, far and away that those who, children who are raised religiously end up being more generous than children who are not raised religiously. So what happened? Well, um, the data set was, it was a mistake. It was an error. The data set was coded incorrectly. And then upon the reanalysis, it turns out that the findings went away. 
And it probably should have been caught by the statistician. Any statisticians here? Your job's important. It should have been caught by the principal investigator. It should have been caught by the peer in the peer review, but it wasn't. But I think this is a story that's good because it illustrates actually why we should trust, significantly trust in science. Uh, the scientific method is good, and there are all these controls that are built within the scientific community in order to catch these sorts of errors. The paper was eventually retracted. Uh, the, 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 the new findings were, were published, demonstrating that there was, there was no statistical difference. Um, and the, ultimately, the, the, there was a check and balance system that should elevate our trust in the, the kind of work that science does. So it, it, I think it illustrates how science produces, the process of science produces a reliable canon of knowledge. But there's one, there's one problem. And the problem was this, that almost no media outlet reported the retraction. And so it left the impression of the many people that had read that, that the original news without ever hearing the actual correction. In fact, there are two, um, two articles that were published after the retraction reporting the original findings. And it's a reminder that we live in a culture that can take a lot of information and spin it, and spin it in the wrong direction. And I suppose the media didn't report on it because, well, it wasn't a really good story. Um, and who suffers but us? Us who don't get the right information and we're led to mis, uh, misbelieve. And that does elevate the importance of being a scientist. Being a scientist within the church and within the Christian community and knowing your expertise and being able to teach the Christian community what is, because within the Christian community there's a lot of suspicion around science. Suspicion that's ungrounded, I would suggest to you, but we need to lift up science, and I think we can largely lift up science, but we can't elevate it as the culture tends to do, as this supreme way of knowing. It has to be qualified in its provisionality, and it has to be remembered that it can't answer really the big questions. So, when we think about and reflect on Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, it's about creation. And, and then as that's where we go to think of the voice of science. Science tells us how to think about creation, what it is and what it's like. And, but that voice, I want to suggest to you, there are other kinds of voices, but I'll just focus on science for time's sake. It's a limited voice. Psalm 19 teaches us to, not to neglect science or the other lesser voices. We need to really carefully listen to them. But on the other hand, we must still listen to the greatest voice. And that brings us to verse 7. If you're looking at in, your, in the Bible, that brings us to verses 7 through 10 and the shift that takes place within the psalm. It goes from, the psalmist goes from speaking about the lesser voice to speaking about the greatest voice. And that's the very structure of, of the psalm. There's a noticeable shift, uh, well, first in, in, in terminology. Again, in verse 1, it's the heavens declare the glory of God, or is El. And verses 1 through 6 are all about God as El. But then something significant actually happens in verse 7. All of a sudden, it goes to the language of the Lord. And if you're looking in your English Bible, it gets translated as capital L-O-R-D, Lord, which behind that English translation is the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the name, the revealed name of God. And seven times from verses 7 through 14, it is Yahweh who is lifted up as the one who is the speaker. 
It's the I am, which is what Yahweh means. This God who is spirit and is eternal and unchanging and is personal. One who converses with us. And so the, even the structure, if you look at the poetry of verses 1 through 6, 1 through 6 is almost a, the, the, the structure of the poetry is somewhat organic, I suppose, reflecting the creation itself. But then in verse 7, so notice the, the, even the layout and the pattern. You can, you can see it right in the English. And the pattern shifts to something that's almost scientific. It's structured. It's well-ordered. It's, it's systematic and it's precise. And so we move in verses 1 through 6 from creation indirectly speaking about God to verse 7 to the greatest voice. It's God directly speaking. So, what is this greatest voice? It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. Well, why is it the greatest voice? Well, duh, because it's God. God who holds the... Comp doesn't have a perception of something. He has all perception. He sees things from every angle, and he understands everything from top to bottom, in and through time and outside of time. And then we have this beginning in verse 7, this elevation of six repeated lines. The law of the Lord is perfect. Let me take you through these really quickly. The law. This is the Hebrew word Torah, which means not commands and prohibitions of don't do this and do that. Torah or means instruction. It's the commands and the promises and the teaching all wrapped in one. And Genesis through Deut Deuteronomy is called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the first five books of the Bible are known and understood to be the Torah. And this instruction, he says, is perfect, which means God's voice lacks nothing. It's complete. It's unerring. It's, it's an unerring guide to life. It won't lead you astray is what this the law of the Lord is perfect. That's what it's conveying. And then again, in the second part of verse 7, it says God's voice refers, it's the statutes, or the word can be translated testimonies. And here we're getting another nuance of what this Torah is. And it's the voice of God that has a witness, or it's God gives witness to what he has spoken. His word is divine, and it comes with divine confirmations. So when God speaks, it always carries with it some form of confirmation so that you can begin to realize that it's he who is speaking to you. It comes with signs. It comes with wonders. The prophetic words come with a foretelling in which the prophet that the Lord speaks to speaks something and it comes to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, and then it's not the Lord speaking. It's consistent. When the Lord says something, he says something that's been consistent in and around all of his words. He never says anything that contradicts himself. The statutes are trustworthy, he says. They're worthy of your trust, God's voice. It's sure, it's settled, it's unshakable. Then it goes to verse 8. It talks about the precepts. And here it's elevating God's voice as an authority, which are our rules to, to guide us. In other words, when God speaks, it's an authoritative voice. Maybe that's, that's another duh kind of statement, but it's true. When God speaks, it's not a take it or leave it sort of attitude. 
it, it has intrinsically to it its authority. And he says the, the precepts, which of this authoritative voice, are right. They're right, meaning they're equitable. They're just in themselves, not just because the divine speaker has spoken them, but because they are right in and of itself. And then again in the second part of verse 8, it says the commands. God's voice gives commands, which obviously requires us to obey. Not just to obey begrudgingly, but to obey with the heartfelt compliance. And those commands are not onerous. The commands, he says, are radiant. And back in verses 5 and 6, it talked about the sun. The sun, which illumines and penetrates. Well, here, the voice of God also is radiant. It penetrates, it illuminates, and it's free of darkness. And then the fifth, verse 9, he talks about the fear of the Lord. And here we have a transition. Four statements about the word of the Lord. And then a fifth statement, which is the fear of the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is not the, a description of the Lord's voice. This is a description of the recipient, the listener, and his or her disposition to the voice of God, to have the fear of the Lord. And this is not a shaking in your boots Friday the 13th kind of fear. This is a fear of awe, of wonder, of a humble listening to what God says. It's a temptation to approach God's word, and, I, and if you've been around the Bible for very long, you know that this is true. It's a temptation to approach God's word and to not have a humble attitude, to be suspicious of it, to call it into question, to disregard it or to ignore it. But we're called to have this fear, which is to listen, and to listen very carefully. Because it, it says in verse 9, it is pure. This word pure, it's the idea of being humble. And not having a know-it-all attitude. I'm not going to listen to that. That can't be right. But it's this fear of the Lord, because when God speaks, it is possible to reject his word. He leaves us open and able to reject his word. And he calls or invites us to fear him. And then finally, the decrees of the Lord. It's God's voice that determines exactly what is right. His judgments are absolutely best. And we're invited to believe them as they are firm, it says, they're constant. They cannot be overturned. And his, his decrees are precisely what should be. So there's this amazing poetry describing the word of God in which we're called to listen. This word is revealed most especially in what we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. The Bible is a literary corpus of writings inspired by the Holy Spirit and mediated by prophets and apostles. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The apostle Peter says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's to hear the word of God and to receive it with humility and to listen to it and to follow it that's the invitation to all of us. Well, I know one question I have is, well, how do I know it's God's voice? How do I know it's not just some scheme to 
take advantage of me, to control me, manipulate me. Well, there are two marks I think we can see here in Psalm 19 that help us discern that this is actually not human speaking, but God's voice. And the two are this, God's voice, if it's God's voice, it will reveal sin. And God's voice, if it's God's voice, will redeem the sinner. So God's voice, it, it, it reveals sin. And that's exactly if you, there's a transition, a third transition that takes place in, in Psalm 19. It, 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 it starts in verse 11, where the go, it goes from the reflection, the psalmist goes from writing about the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. And now the psalmist goes in verse 11 and he begins to pray himself, which is the only actual response, the only right kind of response that we can have. And as he prays, he immediately begins to talk about his own sin. Because when you're confronted by God's voice, you begin to see who you really are. This is that the third voice of the psalm. Creation's voice, the Lord's voice, and now we're having the psalmist's voice, in which begins to internally reflect upon himself. He says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? The implication is no one can. Left to yourself, if you do not have God's voice, you will not know who you really are. You will not have the perception or the discernment to understand actually how broken you are. We're, we're like the fish who don't know that we're swimming in water. But the sun, you see, as the sun exposes darkness, God's voice begins to work and expose things that we need to see in and of ourselves. And it exposes two types of sins that are talked about here in Psalm, Psalm 19. In verse 13, it's these willful sins. These willful sins. They're, they're the sins that we know about. You know, I, if I were to, you were to ask me, okay, you know, you, Michael, you've got to deal with your tongue. Yeah, I've got all these, I've got these five different things that I've got to work on with my tongue. There are willful things that I, I, I participate in and I need, I need to change. But then there's also, he talks about the hidden faults, the hidden sins. And these are, probably means two different things. One, there are secret sins. That is, you know, you all and all of us have the skeletons in the closet in which there are things that you're hiding and you have a lot of shame about and you don't want anyone to know. These are the secret sins that you're conscious of, but you are hiding and you're putting up the shame. You're putting up the facade in order to, to block people from really knowing the way you are. You can't do that to God. He actually penetrates all things. So it's, you're only blocking other people. You can't block God. But then there's this other, there, the, the, the hidden sins are also a reference to the unconscious sins. It's a third category, willful sins, secret sins. And then there's these unconscious sins. Those are the things in which we do which we're not even aware that we do them. And they are actually part of the darkness and part of the brokenness that's in our lives. And I don't know what the percentages are, but I would guess that, um, here's my guess of myself, there's 1% of me that I know, of all my sins, 1% are my known sins. And of all my secret sins, Lord, I pray I have no secret sins, I, I'm trying not to. All my secret sins, perhaps that's 1%. 
But then my guess is that 98% of all of my sins are unconscious. I'm not even aware that they're there. And uh, of course, that's part of the reason why we want to put our head in the sand and not look. But as we encounter the voice of God, the point is, as you encounter the voice of God, these things will rise within you. And my challenge to you is as you read the Bible, which is the, the first and primary manifestation, the primary supreme way that we encounter the voice of God, it will begin to disclose sins. You'll get uncomfortable. You'll, you'll feel angry. You'll feel shame. And those are all good things. That's the way you should feel with sin. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually, and if you don't, if you're not feeling that way at all, then guess what? It's probably not God's voice. It's probably not God's voice. But it also, God's voice, doesn't just reveal sin, and this is the good news. It redeems the sinner. That's the majesty of this passage. The, the, the very last word of Psalm 19 is God, our rock and our redeemer. So the psalm, the crescendo of the psalm is the focus not on our sin, but on the one who is able to purchase us out of our own sin slavery and to save us. That's who this God is. The word of God doesn't just strip us and lay us bare. It restores and redeems. God's word has this transforming power to it. So as you read scripture, this is what you should expect. If it's really God's word, this is what's going to happen. And he goes through it, beginning back in verse 7. Your soul will be revived. When God speaks like Jesus spoke to Lazarus, the dead rise. And so when you encounter the word of God, it will revive your soul. Not only so, but it says in verse 7, the simple will become wise. And guess what? We're all born and remain simpletons. But as you counter the word of God, it will begin to give you wisdom. And your way of thinking and your way of acting will begin to change. Not only so, but in verse 8 it says, it gives, God's voice gives joy to the heart. It gives joy to the heart. These are not just fleeting pleasures. If you pursue other voices, they will give you fleeting pleasures for a moment. But what God's voice does to us, it, it instills a whole state of being of joy in which we experience a transcendent form of, of flourishing and happiness that even transcends our circumstances. We can be in miserable circumstances. And I know people that are even here that are like that, in which they are experiencing the joy because of the voice of God. Verse 8, second part of verse, it gives light to the eyes. God's voice will give light to your eyes. It will give you purpose, and it will give you direction. And then finally, it, it, it's, it endures forever. His voice not only gives us life now, but it gives us eternal life. So that, verse 10, God's voice is nothing else but precious, more precious than gold. It's worth everything that you own and more. And not only so, but it's not only more precious than gold, but it's sweeter to, than honey. So recall, if you want a takeaway, the takeaway is this. Listen to the greatest voice. Listen to that supreme voice. And practically speaking, are you spending time 
meditating, reading, listening to God's speech in and through scripture. Nothing has changed my life more over the last couple of years than me spending daily time in scripture. I've been a Christian for a long time, but it wasn't until about three years ago that I really steadily started spending time with God. And it's made a huge difference to my day because the very first thing I do, other than taking a shower and getting a cup of coffee, is I go to the Word. And I listen to the Lord and it centers who I am. So go to the Word of God. It will change you. It will expose sin, but it won't just expose sin. It will lift you up and you'll begin to experience God's amazing and awesome redemption. So they, our vacation came to an end. We're in San Francisco at the San Francisco airport and we arrived there a little bit early. And uh, so I had time. I said, we were flying back to Boston on a different air, uh, airline, um, but I, I said to Tracy and the kids, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna go back to Southwest and, and see if, if uh, my journal turns up. And I remember going on the shuttle uh, that's at the airport and going to the next terminal. And I was just praying, Lord, please, I know I don't deserve your promises, but would you please let me find this journal? I got to uh, the baggage claim area and then you, uh, where you find you know, lost items and I went to the, the desk and uh, you know, said this is my name and I've, I've lost a, a, a black journal, it's really important to me, I've filed a claim on, the, on your website, nothing's come up. Oh, okay, uh, there's two people behind the desk uh, and one of them, a guy went to the back and uh, was there for a few minutes and I'm just kind of waiting, what's going to happen? He came back and he said, I'm sorry, I don't, I haven't seen anything. Um, I've been looking. I'm like, oh, okay, Lord. I guess that's it. I'm about to walk away and the other lady, uh, this older black woman, uh, was behind the register and said, what is it again? A, a, a black journal? Yeah. And right below the register, she pulled it out. Is, is this it? Yes, that's it. Oh, why don't you show me your ID? I said, my name is right in the front. My first, last name. And then she confirmed it. She gave it back to me. And I'll never forget her words. She said this, didn't know her from Timbuktu. She said, well, Michael, it looks like his favor is upon you. And you know what? His favor is upon you. You might have been running from the Lord. You may not be listening to the Lord, but he has not forgotten you. And he invites you. He calls you. He will not make you or coerce you, but he invites you to come to him, to cry out to him. And if you do, he will not fail you. He will restore you, redeem you, and fill you with all of his wonders. Listen to the greatest voice. Lord Jesus, open up our ears to hear you, 
Thank you for your love. Thank you that you never will give up on us. I pray that every brother and every sister and everyone in this room would open themselves up to you for your glory and our joy. Amen.